Hi everybody, my name is Darren, and uh, it's great to see you this morning as, uh, as we begin our service together. Um, you know, why don't we do this? Let's, uh, let's pray together. And we're going to be in John 19, so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, but let's, let's pray together first. God, we thank you for all of your gifts. We look at these uh, babies and their parents and their siblings, and we are so blessed by, by you, everything we have, as Joel just said, everything we have is a gift from you. The blood in our veins and the air in our lungs and the, the lungs to process the air, the whole thing. We, we can walk it all the way out to the nth degree and there is nothing we have and nothing we know that you aren't the author of and we worship you. We are grateful to you. We thank you for that and the opportunity to gather here together and to open your word together, to sing your praises. All of those things are your gifts as well. We give them back to you uh, as an active choice, but God, we are desperate for you to move among us. And so now as we open your word together, we pray that your spirit would do what only you can do, and that is work in conjunction with your word to speak to our hearts, that we would be moved by your word, that we would be inspired that we would be comforted and convicted by what we see in, in, in the Bible here, God. And we pray that you, would, um, that you would speak to each heart and that you'd be glorified in our time. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So we turn together in John chapter 19. Uh, we are continuing our study called Love and Trouble. And what we've seen as we've sort of walked through every verse of this book, the Gospel of John, is we've seen both the love of God on display, the way in which that creates a little bit of trouble for the Lord Jesus himself as he gives and serves and sacrifices. Uh, no place more clearly than in John 19 do we see the love of God create trouble for God, create trouble for Jesus in the giving of his life and the crucifixion story. But what we've also seen in almost every page is the way in which our love of God also doesn't leave us where it finds us. That when we recognize that God loves us and that he died for us, there is also a, a, um, there's also a catalytic effect in our own life. That it doesn't leave us alone, but it compels us. And that can sometimes be troubling as well, especially if we've gotten comfortable or if we've gotten a little bit lackadaisical or we've sort of slowed down and just gotten into a routine, when we start to look longingly at the, at the love of God, it moves us out of that comfortable space. It moves us to give and to serve. And uh, we see that certainly in this text as well. Now, as we come to John, the middle of John 19, we're going to finish this text this morning. And I, what I want you to know is that we're looking at a story that might be overly familiar to you. As we talk about the crucifixion, to be honest, it's probably the kind of thing that you've seen in a movie. You might have seen a passion play. You've certainly seen representations in classical art, or you've seen it in, uh, uh, maybe you've even got representations of the crucifixion of Christ in your home, on the walls, or in the front of your Bible, or what, like, in some ways that familiarity doesn't do us any favors, you know what I'm saying? Because when you become overly familiar with a thing, uh, you, start to, you start to lose kind of the, the sharpness, you start to lose the detail of what's actually important in the thing. And so, as we come to it, I would encourage you to look afresh at this story. John gives us some different details than the other synoptic gospels give us. John's gospel was written later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and so he has the ability both to fill in some gaps, but he also is answering some very specific concerns that his audience had. He was writing to a primarily Jewish audience, and so we'll see in the text that he is, uh, he's pointing to the fulfillment of prophetic scripture and some of those things. Make sure we look at it with fresh eyes, because in this text, we see Jesus truly in the midst of crisis. And you know, you learn a lot about somebody in the midst of crisis, in the midst of trauma. I had a friend at Hume Lake who used to say that you, when somebody, uh, you can find out what's in somebody when they're squeezed, you know, kind of like an orange. You find out what's inside the orange when the orange gets squeezed. Whatever's inside is what comes out. 
The same thing is true in our lives in those moments in which we feel the crush and we feel the squeeze. It does sort of reveal things about what's going on inside of us that you might not otherwise see. In this text, we certainly see Jesus being squeezed, and it's interesting to see what comes out of him in the midst of this crisis. I was, I was at a, a store just recently that I, that I frequent a lot around here, just local, local business, and on this particular night, I rolled up, and when I rolled up, there was a group of people out front, and there was like, kind of like a, there was a bit of a scuffle. There's a little bit of a fight going on out in front of the store, and uh, so I, I kind of looked, but I, you know, it looked like it was under control, so I went inside, and inside was one of the guys that works at the store, a guy I know fairly well. He's kind of quiet, and uh, he's got sort of a just kind of a kind of a mousy personality. I've, I can never get more than a couple sentences out of him. I'll be like, "Hey, how are you?" You know, and he's always just like, "I'm fine." You know, he doesn't really want to talk to me. And I, so I walk in, and he's got the phone, and he's calling the police. And I said, "What's going on?" And he said, "Well, there was a guy in the parking lot that was breaking into cars, and uh, so we saw him on the cameras. We saw him break into cars, and so my buddy, one of the other guys that works at the shop, went out to detain him. So he stopped the guy that was breaking into cars, and he made the guy sit down on the sidewalk. And he said, I want you to wait here until the cops come. We called the police. Want you to wait here until the cops come. But of course, the guy that was burglarizing the cars didn't want to wait for the police. So he's kind of fighting, right? He's wrestling with them. He doesn't want to stay. So the one guy that works at the store is like holding this guy down. But there's kind of like there's a fight going on while the other guy called the police. And then the craziest thing happened in the midst of all this drama, I see the guy that, that normally is really quiet and kind of demure. He's, he's just sort of laid back. He walks outside and he walks up to the guy that was breaking into cars and he grabs him by the collar and he's like, Hey, if you don't stop fighting, I'm going to murder you. And I was like, Whoa, like, where did that come from? He's like, I will find out where you live and I will never leave you alone. And I, honestly, I was like, I've never even heard that guy say more than hello, right? And just this like crazy sort of monster came out of him. Why? Because he was in the midst of crisis. Because in the midst of the drama of what was unfolding, he, like a whole different person came out. In the midst of the crucifixion of Jesus, we probably would forgive Jesus if he was a little bit grouchy or if he was a little bit angry, if he was a little bit dismissive. And yet what we will see as we look at this is the perfect peace of God. And we're going to see some snapshots of who Jesus is that are revealed as can only be revealed in the midst of this crush. I'd love it if you'd read this text with me. And in honor of God's word, if you'd stand to your feet, we'll read it together in its entirety. This is John 19, 16 and following. It says, So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. That's Pilate. If you were with us last week, you know Pilate delivered him over. He delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took the garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. 
But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And he saw... Uh, He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Thank you. You can be seated. The first thing that I want you to see as we look at Jesus in the midst of this crush and we see things revealed about who he is, is that Jesus is revealed in this story as a common criminal. He's revealed as a common criminal, and that might be a little bit weird for you to think about because for us, we only know this story in the context of revering him as the creator of the universe, as the savior of the world. When we talk about the crucifixion, we're thinking about the fact that God came in the flesh, took the sins of the world upon himself, and died in our place. But for the people that observed this in the first century, crucifixion was just another day. Crucifixion was a matter of course. It was a regular thing that was occurring, and it would not have been shocking to them. It would not have been jarring to them. In fact, most historians will say that the the center posts on these crosses were left in place. The cross beams would be exchanged as new criminals were, were brought to be sacrificed, but the center beams would stay in place, and they would be used almost regularly. I don't know if you've thought about it, but the cross on which Jesus died would have been previously used by another criminal, and it was likely used after him. And, and you might sort of cringe at that and think, no, that's a special cross. Listen, it wasn't a special cross. The man upon the cross was special. Jesus was viewed in this moment as a, as a common criminal. He was put through the same routine that any other criminal would be put through. They led him through the streets with a sign in front of him that said what he had done. 
Now we do notice here in irony that the sign on Jesus was a sign that said Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. This was Pilate's sort of last jab at the Sanhedrin and the chief priests. He takes the last little jab and he puts on, on top of Jesus' uh, cross and on the cross as he was carrying it that he's the king of the Jews. And it's troubling to the Jewish leaders, so much so that they say to Pilate, hey, uh, listen, dude, don't, don't write that he is the king of the Jews. He's not the, not the king of the Jews. He just said he was. So could you write, this guy claimed to be the king of the Jews? And Pilate's like, no, I'm leaving it, right? I'm not doing that. Why? Pilate didn't love the Jews. He hated this drama. He didn't want to be a part of it. And so he's taking a jab at them. Because of his jab, Jesus ends up with a sign that accurately portrays who he is. But he's being mocked for that. He's being ridiculed. The people there in front of him didn't recognize that he truly was the Messiah. He's led through the streets. He's been beaten and flogged. He's had his beard torn out. He's been spit out. He's been punched in the face. Now he's nailed to a cross like a common criminal. It's important for us to see him in that view because that's a view he chose. What we do not see is Jesus defending himself. What we do not see is Jesus saying, hey, just so you all know, I'm dying on the cross, but I didn't do anything wrong. I'm doing it because you guys are all sinners. We don't see Jesus making a case for himself. We don't see him defending himself. We don't see him arguing with the assessments of the crowd. In fact, we see him choosing a position that puts him in an equilateral position with criminals. In fact, it tells us in John's account that he was in between two other robbers. They were likely uh, comrades of Barabbas who'd been released. Those guys were probably going to all be crucified at the same time. And Jesus is just in the midst of these criminals. And when I hear that story, it troubles me. It troubles me when I read in John 19 that it says, Jesus went out, verse 17, bearing his own cross. Let me tell you what, Jesus, Jesus didn't deserve a cross. First Peter chapter 2, this might be familiar to some of you, but First Peter chapter 2 verse 24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus didn't bear his cross. He bore my cross. He was bearing your cross. And yet we don't hear him protest. We don't hear him point out that fact. We don't hear him argue it. We see him, as Philippians 2 says, humble himself. We see him humble himself to the point of death and death on a cross humiliated. Hebrews Chapter 12, verse 2, says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus despised the shame. He set the shame aside. He endured it. And he is seated now at the right hand of the throne of God, it says in Hebrews chapter 12. Jesus was willing to be seen as a wrongdoer and as a criminal, which is the opposite of who he was. And I'll tell you, I am convicted by that view. When I look at that view of Jesus, the view of, of the common criminal, I'm convicted because I, I spend, and maybe your life is like mine, I spend a lot of time making sure people know who I am. Making sure people know that I'm a good guy, that I don't, that I, that I don't you know, on purpose do bad things, that I try to be kind and I try to be loving and I try to be generous. We spend, all of us, spend a lot of time making sure that our reputation stays unstained, and yet here Jesus allows his reputation to be sullied for the good of mankind. I just, even just recently, I, uh, about, uh, I don't know, two months ago, I bought a scooter. Some of you know that. I bought this little scooter just, just for getting to, from home to work and back, whatever. It's, it's fun. When I bought it, the guy there said, uh, hey, when you need any service, I paid for the warranty, and he said, uh, anytime you need service, we'll come and pick it up, and we'll, uh, we'll take it to the shop, and we'll 
do the oil change or whatever, and then we'll bring it back. And so I was like, that sounds nice, because I don't plan to take this thing on the freeway. I don't want to be riding the scooter a long way. I don't want to die right away, you know? So uh, uh, then about three weeks ago, maybe four weeks ago, I noticed there's just like this little problem. It's just like a, it's just a peripheral thing. There was like this little screw that was coming loose. And so I called the dealership and I said, hey, uh, I've got this little thing. I just want to have you guys check it out, make sure it's safe. Would you come and pick up the scooter and do the work on it? And uh, the service guy's like, yeah, we just need to schedule it. And then I get a call from the owner of the dealership. And he calls me and he's like, hey, he's like, I, it just came to my attention that you were asking to have your, your bike. He called it a bike, which made me feel cool. Uh, we, I see that you're having your scooter. Uh, you want to have it transported. He's like, we're not going to do that. We're not going to transport it down here. If you want us to work on it, you're going to have to bring it down here. And I said, well, they promised me when I bought it that they would transport it. And he goes, listen, he goes, I hear you saying that, that that's what they told you. He says, but you and I both know that never happened. And I was like, what? And so like, there's this, there's this pride that rises in me, right? There's this pride that rises in me. And I'm like, and I said to the guy on the phone, I said, I'll have you know that like, I'm not a liar, sir. Like I'm not somebody who makes things up for my own good. In fact, I'm a, and I was like this close to saying, I work for God, you know? Uh, like I work at a church and I do not lie, sir. And how dare you make these, you know, like I was really kind of flustered and I just, so instead I was just like, Hey, you know what? I like, that's not who I am. I'm not a guy who fabricates things. This was said to me, you owe me, like you should do this thing. And he's like, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do that because it never happened. You're making that up. And then he kind of hung up on me. And, uh, so I was kind of mad. I talked to another guy who said, hey, what you're talking about is probably not a big deal. Continue to ride it. You'll be fine. And then when you have your 500 mile service, we'll take care of that other little thing. So I'm not, I'm not super worried about it, but it kind of bugged me that the dude called me a liar. You know what I'm saying? And so the whole reason I tell you that story is last night, uh, some friends and I went to a play at Fullerton High School. And um, as we were getting ready to go out to the car, we walked through my garage and the scooter's sitting there. And one of my friends says, uh, says oh, hey, how's, how's the scooter life? And the first thing that came out of my mouth was, did I tell you somebody called me a liar? You know? And my wife was like, uh, that's not really what she's asking about. She was asking if you like the scooter. And I'm like, well, the scooter's fine, but I got called a liar, you know? And it's been like this thing that I haven't been able to turn loose of. When somebody accuses you falsely, when somebody says something about you that isn't true, it kind of sticks in your gut and you want to argue it. In some ways, I want to tell all of you so that you can be on my side. You know what I'm saying? To absolve the frustration that I feel about being falsely accused. And yet my savior, the king of the universe, the, the one that I idolize more than any other, was willing to be beaten and flogged and nailed to a cross and kept with common criminals. Why am I so busy trying to preserve my reputation? Why do I spend so much time trying to make sure people know I'm good and smart and loving and truthful and whatever? Why with Jesus can I not die to myself? for the glory of God. But instead I need to argue, I need to defend myself. I, I love the fact that here we see Jesus numbered with the guilty, and yet I so often cling to my own reputation. He's carrying my cross. There are very few times where I find myself, you know, I, I will pay the penalty for my own crimes. I don't have a problem owning my own flaws, but I don't find myself very often suffering for the mistakes of other people. In fact, most of the time when other people have made mistakes, I'm very anxious to make sure they carry their own cross. You know what I'm saying? But my Jesus, my Savior, he's carrying my cross. And if my life is to emulate his, I want to look at his willingness to be numbered with the criminals and recognize that there is a humility on display that must be replicated in my life as well. Not only do we see Jesus, the common criminal here in John chapter 19, but we also see Jesus, the compassionate child. Look at what it says in, uh, in verse 25. 
It's the standing by the cross of Jesus where his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. I don't know about you, but I'm deeply moved by this scene that John paints for us. Here we have Jesus flogged and beaten, cruelly punished for crimes he didn't commit, dragged through the streets and now nailed to a cross. And in the midst of that blood-soaked mess, Jesus cracks open one eye and he sees standing somewhere near the foot of the cross his mom. His mom, right? This is his mother. And in the midst of the big sort of universal thing that he's doing. He's there on the greatest mission of all human history. Jesus is there to redeem the world, to rescue all of us from sin and death. He's there in fulfillment of the Father's will. And yet in the midst of this huge mission he's on, he cracks open an eye and he has the presence of mind and the compassion of heart to care about what's about to happen to his mommy. I gotta tell you, I love that about Jesus. I love that he isn't so focused on the big global goal, that he isn't so focused on the big time mission, that he misses the small needs of actual individuals in front of him. Here we see an expression of the compassionate child, Jesus, who looks at his mom standing with John, and he says, Mom, knowing that this would be an awful thing for her to watch, but something that she had anticipated, he looks at her and he says, Mom, John's gonna take care of you. John is your son now. Behold your son. And he looks at John and he says, John, she's now your mother. This is a beautiful outworking, a beautiful expression of the care and concern of God for us as individuals in little things. Yes, Jesus is on the cross dying for the sins of Mary, dying for the sins of John, dying for the sins of the Roman guards and Pilate and and the Pharisees. He's dying for us all. And yet in the midst of that big goal, he still sees little needs and cares enough about them to address them. And it's interesting that, that he even feels the need to, com- to, to, to com- sort of commission John to take care of his mom because Jesus had earthly brothers, right? We know he had other brothers and yet he doesn't say, hey mom, don't worry, my brothers will take care of you. He hands her off to John, why? Because his brothers, as we understand from the scripture, were not necessarily believers at that point. And Jesus had already affirmed the fact that he saw a greater tie, that he saw a greater familiarity, that he saw greater solidarity between those who were obedient to the word of God than he did between those who had genetic and blood ties. Does that make sense? It says, um, you you could turn with me if you want. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus addresses this. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus has said, um, in response to the fact that his his mother and his brothers had come to see him. So it says in Luke 8, uh, 19, Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. And Jesus answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. My family are those who are obedient to the word of God. What's he saying? He's not saying that his mother and his brothers don't matter. He's not saying he doesn't care about the blood ties that he's got or the genetic ties that he has to them in the incarnation. But what he's expressing is that there's a familiarity There is a family connection that goes deeper and is actually more beautiful and vital than even the one we have with with our blood relatives. And that is the family that is associated and the, the family that is established in solidarity behind obedience to God's word. He says, my family are the people who are on the same mission as me. My family, that, that has profound impact upon us. 
that has profound impact upon us here this morning. He says in Luke 18, in Luke 18, 29, Jesus said to them, after they had just said, we've given up so much, right? Remember, Peter says, Jesus, we've given up so much to follow you. And Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, there is one who has left, uh, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Peter says, we've given up so much. And Jesus says, yes. And to those who have lost family, to those who have lost their homes, to those who have lost their jobs, to those who've been rejected because of their commitment to me, I want to tell you, I see you and I will actually multiply your brothers and your mothers and your parents and your sons and your homes and your livelihoods. I will multiply those things, not just in the kingdom to come, he says in Luke 18, but here and now in the present age. What's he talking about? Well, what he's saying is that the community of faith, that those who are followers of Jesus, those of us are shoulder to shoulder in the pursuit of who Christ is, become family. Listen, there, I would guess that there are some of you sitting within sound of my voice this morning who feel absolutely rejected, maybe by your parents, maybe by your families, maybe by your, maybe by your fiance, or maybe by your coworkers, or maybe by, you know, a, a, because you've been following Jesus, because you've made a commitment to serve him with your life, you've been pushed away. And you feel alone. You feel like nobody sees you and nobody loves you. You feel maybe like you've lost your family. Can I say to you with Jesus, what we hear him do through the blood-crusted eye as he looks at, at Mary and John, he says to us this morning as well, to say to us in our loneliness, church, behold your mom. Behold your dad. Behold your brothers and your sisters. Behold your family. Here we are. Why do you think we place such a, pr- a high emphasis in our church on gathering together outside of this room, right? With the potlucks and whatever. Nobody, nobody loves potlucks, right? That's not like a thing we're all dying to do. But why do we do those? We, we do those gatherings, not because we like that green jello with the carrots in it. We do those gatherings because Jesus himself placed a priority on the family of God. And the invitation in to care for and to, and to love and to protect and to preserve one another inside the bounds of our commitment to the truth. We are your family. We are your father and your mother and your sons and your brothers and your daughters and your sisters. I love in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 49, God says this. He says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. God says, look, even a nursing mother in a certain circumstance can forget about her child, but you know who will never forget you? I will never forget you, God says. Jesus from the cross, the compassionate child, looks at his mother in her grief, and he says, I see you. My eyes are not so lifted up that I don't see the hurting right in front of me. I will tell you again, I'm convicted by this part of the text because in the pursuit of all we're trying to do as a church and all I'm trying to do as a shepherd and all we're trying to do as followers of Jesus, sometimes we can get so focused on the big overarching goals that we miss the simple needs of people right in front of us. We're focused on the glory of God and honoring him in our thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes and that's not wrong, but it becomes wrong when we're so focused on that that we miss there are people in front of us who just need a taco or they just need somebody to put an arm around their shoulders. They just need somebody to look into their eyes and love them. Jesus from the cross in fulfillment of the greatest mission mankind has ever known sees a hurting woman and provides for her. Don't miss Jesus, the compassionate child. 
because it will comfort you. Because it comforts me that he sees me. That he cares about the little things. And as his follower, I got to care about the little things too. I got to see people. I got to see their hurts and care for them beyond just the big overarching goals, right? Jesus, the common criminal we see here. Jesus, the compassionate child. Come back with me to John 19, if you will. The third thing I want you to see, and the third thing I've been stirred by this week, is Jesus, the committed Christ. It says in verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing all that was now finished, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus from the cross one of his last human experiences. He's experienced all these things, right? He's been to weddings. He's walked on the water. He's been in the midst of the storm. He's cooked fish. You know, he's done all these things. His final human experience is thirst. He feels thirst. And there is solidarity with our human experience in that. We see the, the incarnation, the brokenness, the fallenness of God as he's thirsty. By the way, and it's not insignificant, the only other time in the gospel of John that we hear Jesus expressed thirst. Do you remember it? You remember the other time Jesus says he's thirsty? It happens in John 4. In John 4, Jesus is sitting at the well, right, with the woman at the well. And the woman comes and he says, would you give me a drink? And she's like, whoa, dude, like we're not supposed to talk. You're a Jewish rabbi. I'm a Samaritan woman. Like we're not even supposed to be friends. I can't give you any water. You shouldn't want to drink water that I'd give you. And he looks at her and he says, if you knew who I was, John 4, if you knew who I was, you would ask me and I would give you living water that would spring up in you a well of living water to eternal life, Right? Jesus says, I'm the living water. Here in John 19, we see the living water, the source of nourishment for our souls, physically thirsty. It's very moving. The last thing Jesus does as a human being on earth, the last thing he experiences is sour wine on the end of a branch that they shove in his face to satisfy his thirst. But I want you to see here that I, I think Jesus remembers the last time he expressed this thirst. Because at the end of John 4, and remember at the end of that story, the woman at the well, and maybe you, don't, maybe you don't even know it, but I'll just tell you at the end of that, Jesus' disciples come back. You remember that? And they go, Jesus, have you had anything to eat? I mean, you've been here all day. We were supposed to get you some food. We didn't get you any food. Aren't you hungry? And Jesus says in John 4, 34, in John 4, 34, Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So flash forward to John 19, Jesus is on the cross, and because he's a human being, fully human, he feels this thirst. And also because he's aware that his time is almost fulfilled, and so to fulfill the scripture, the prophecy that talked about his thirst, Jesus, in fulfillment of the scripture, says, I'm thirsty. And when he says, I'm thirsty, I think he thinks about what nourishes him. And he remembers John 4, 34. This is my guess, right? He remembers John 4, 34, where he had a conversation with his disciples to say, you guys think I'm worried about lunch, but that isn't what fills me up. What fills me up is to do the will of my father, to do the thing God has called me to do. That's my food. My food is to be obedient to the will of my father. So now he is on the cross and he says, I'm thirsty. And they give him this sour wine and he drinks the sour wine to fulfill the scripture and he says, it is finished. Let me tell you, when he says it is finished, he doesn't mean like, oh, that wine was gross and I'm glad I finished it, right? He also doesn't mean, oh, I'm in a lot of pain and now my life is over, it is finished. That's not a death cry. When Jesus says it is finished, the literal word he uses is the word tetelestai. It's a Greek word. And, and it, it's, tr it's a common word. It's not a spiritual word. It's a common word that was used in the marketplace. 
If I were to, you know, buy a, a scooter from you and you were to make me a guarantee, a warranty that I was going to, no, we won't talk about that. So if I, <laughs> if I were to buy a fish from you, right? You're in the marketplace and I were to come to you and buy a fish. I say, I want to take a fish home and feed my family with it. As soon as I paid you for the fish, the two shekels or whatever it was, I pay you for the fish, you, the merchant, would yell out, Tetelestai, it is finished. And all that meant is the transaction is complete. It is accomplished, right? What we set out to do here, this exchange is finished. When Jesus says, Tetelestai, it probably would have been confusing to the crowd around him. Because it's not the thing you yell when you're in terrible agony. But what was present in Jesus' mind is that what he was really thirsty for, what he was really hungry for was not the sour wine. What he was really hungry for is the fulfillment of God's purpose and God's plan. And so from that place, John tells us that he says, it's finished. What is he talking about? I mean, if you have the John journal we've been working through, circle and underline the word it. What's he talking about? What's finished? What is accomplished? What's accomplished is the will of the Father, the obedience of the Son, and the redemption of the world. That is what is accomplished. That transaction is what's finished. He's taken the sin of the world upon himself. Jesus comes to the earth and he takes our sin, all the wrong things we've ever done upon himself, not because he deserved it, but because we did. He carries the cross that we should have been carrying. And he dies on the cross in order to glorify the Father by being obedient to him and to rescue us by paying the penalty for our sin. He rises from the dead and extends to us by his grace the very same resurrection life. He gives us the opportunity to be raised from the dead spiritually like he was raised from the dead physically. Jesus from the cross takes that drink and I think he thinks, I remember, I remember another time I was thirsty, but now I'm full. What makes me hungry is to do the will of the Father and I've done it. It is finished. And when I read the testimony of Jesus crying out, it is finished, John will give us a couple of other ways in which prophecy was fulfilled, that Jesus' legs weren't broken, because it says in the text, he gave up his spirit. As a side note, maybe peripheral, you and I don't have the ability to give up our spirits. There's nobody in here who can choose right now to be dead, right? You can't do that. You, you could do some things to hurry that along, but none of us can give up our spirits. We're just not capable of it. It's proof of his divine power. Jesus is not murdered He is not killed here. He gives himself up. He says himself, nobody takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down, the power to take it back up again. That's what he does. He gives up his spirit. John tells us these things to show that Jesus was fulfilling prophecy in multiple ways, both that his bones weren't broken and that they pierced his side. They will gaze on him whom they have pierced. Jesus is thinking about the fulfillment of prophecy as a way to obey the Father. He says it is finished. What the transaction, the work that I came to do is completed. And I'll tell you, as I look at this committed Christ, I'm convicted by all the ways in which my life is not on a pursuit to be filled up with the glory of the Father. There are all kinds of places where what satisfies me is not obedience to God's word or obedience to the compelling of the Spirit within me, But what compels me or what I'm hungry for is just to get another drink, just to have another sandwich, eat another Oreo or whatever, right? What if we were filled up through our obedience to God? Jesus says it is finished, it is accomplished, and that it is the saving of our souls, the glorification of God, the completion of God's will, the obedience of the Son. We see John 1.18 talks about the revelation of Christ. It says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. What did Jesus finish? He finished this revelation of the Father. 
In Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verse 14, it says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who were being sanctified. One offering, Jesus finished that work. So we see Jesus, the common criminal here, as he's squeezed. We see Jesus, the compassionate child. We see Jesus, the committed Christ. And then last, we see Jesus, the compelling catalyst. The compelling catalyst. Look with me again, if you will, at John 19 and jump all the way down to, uh, down to verse 31. No, sorry, not to 31. Jump even further, 38. It says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. Joseph of Arimathea was a believer in Jesus, but in private, he was a secret, secret believer, which, by the way, isn't really a thing. But he believed, but he didn't want to make it out in public because he didn't want to be punished. Now in response to this great sacrifice of Jesus, we see a man who had only operated in secret, a man who was, who was very wealthy and very well known in this community. We see him step up to Pilate, who had already demonstrated that he didn't like the Jews, that he was frustrated by this whole ordeal, and he just wanted to be done with it. Now Joseph of Arimathea takes the, 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 uh, he takes the motivation, or whatever you want to call that, initiative, thank you very much, make a good team. We take the initiative to approach Pilate and say, can I prepare his body for the tomb? On the day of preparation, what would it take to get a strict legalistic Jew to be willing to come near a dead body on the day of preparation? You know what it took? A clear view of the cross. Joseph of Arimathea steps up and he says, can I take care of the body? And you know who joins him? It tells us here, verse 30, uh, 39, Nicodemus. Do you remember Nicodemus from John 3? Nicodemus, the Jewish leader, the member of of the Sanhedrin, likely, Nicodemus, who had come at John 3 at the night and said, hey, we can tell that you're from God. And Jesus is like, bro, you can't even see the kingdom of God if you haven't been born again. It's fun to see this story come full circle. Another disciple of Jesus who was functioning in secret now comes into the light. He steps out of the shadows. I'm, I'm moved and kind of bothered by the fact that it isn't one of the 12 disciples or the 11 disciples that takes care of the body of Jesus. It's not Peter. It's not James. It's not John. It's not those guys. You know who it is? It's some guys that have been in the shadows. Why do they come out of the shadows and do this thing? They do it because of their view of the sacrifice of Christ. When they see his sacrifice, it stirs in them a thinking that says, how can I say and do nothing when he has done so much? How can I give nothing when he has given so much? It says they take his body on the day of preparation or just in advance of that and they prepare it with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe 75 pounds I get a 30 pound dog a, a bag of dog food at my house and I make my kids carry it in right 75 pounds some some historians will estimate that 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe would have been the equivalent of about 150,000 to 200,000 dollars most households good households had five pounds in reserve for a death in the family 75 pounds it's extravagant what brings about that kind of extravagance? What brings them out of the shadows and, and moves them to give in such an extravagant way? You know what it is? It's the view of the sacrifice of Christ. They see a sacrifice and Jesus, when he's crushed, is a compelling catalyst. Except, is he? Because we've all seen that, right? We've read this story every year. We read it every year at Easter. Maybe you read it this week in preparation for this message. Maybe you'll read it again this week in a small group Bible study. We've read this time and time again. Has it moved you like this? 
Has it moved me out of the shadows? Can I tell you, and I said this at the very beginning, sometimes our over-familiarity with the text does us a disservice. We feel like it's a really good thing that we know the ins and outs of this passage, but in some ways, knowing the ins and outs of this passage might numb us to the incredible sacrifice of Jesus. And if we become numbed to the incredible sacrifice of Jesus, can I tell you, we will be less likely to make incredible sacrifices ourselves. If we forget that what he did was extravagant, that what he did was unparalleled, then we will be less motivated to make extravagant moves in our own lives. It's an interesting thing that happens in the church. I, th- I think most pastors and shepherds like myself are really nervous to talk about money, right? Because there have been abuses over time in, in the church. Now I'm talking just sort of globally. We all know stories about pastors who were skimming money off the top or churches that were just about money or it became like a, oh, you know, give money and God will bless you or do this and that. And we, we see it all throughout history that there have been abuses with regard to money. Can I tell you that what that does in some ways is it, is it creates a church that's nervous to talk about money because we don't want to be perceived as being all about money. But when we get nervous to talk about it at all, then what happens is our level of discipleship drops. Because I I just want to be totally honest with you. I don't care at all about money. God will provide what we need to do the ministry that he's called us to do. And we we don't need money to do that. He will provide. But what I care deeply about is sacrifice. And money and the giving of a church, and not just money, but also the service of a church, the sacrifice of a church, when we're trying to rally people to serve in various ministries, we're trying to get people to go out into the neighborhood and care for the poor, and care for the sick, and care for the hurting. When we have a hard time with finances or with service, when we have a hard time with that, it's not uh, that we're not talking about money enough, it's that we haven't looked at Jesus long enough. Because when we look at Jesus, it stirs in us a sense to go, if that's the guy I'm following and he was extravagantly sacrificial, then I also should be extravagantly sacrificial. I I don't care in this context, in our church, about the budget. I know that sounds really weird. What I care about is that every person in this congregation who calls himself a follower of Jesus is making a sacrifice making a sacrifice. It doesn't matter to me exactly what that looks like. They're not, it's not going to be equitable across the board. But each and every one of us, if we have a clear view of the sacrifice of Christ, we should also be moved to live a sacrificial life as well. And many times, when we start to look at the evidence of what our discipleship looks like, I will say there are great examples of people who are following Jesus faithfully, but there are also a large number of us who coming to this service and sitting here and sort of being entertained for an hour a week is, is the height of our sacrifice. It's all we're doing. We're giving up an hour. Is that what you feel compelled to do? In light of the sacrifice of Christ, I will tell you every week, I sit in this service, this is not in my notes, but I sit in this service every week and I am grieved in my heart when we get to the end of the service and we're singing the praises of God and there are people flooding out. Is, is that how you've been compelled by your view of the cross? You gotta get to Mimi's quicker? Gotta get to the parking lot before somebody else? Is that what your view of Christ sees? And I'm not trying to shame, if you're a guest, feel free to, you can come and go whenever you want, but if this is your home, Don't look away from the cross. Don't shortchange the Lord Jesus. He is worthy. And if we're missing sacrifice, we missed it all. We have not looked at him. I love the fact that Nicodemus, I love the fact that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea do this extravagant thing. And the reason they do it is not because somebody asked them to do it. The disciples don't do it. They do it because they see him and they think, if that's what this is about, then something has to change in us as well. I I will close with this this morning. 
and say that the humility and the compassion and the commitment and the sacrifice of Christ should inspire, comfort, convict, and compel us. The humility, compassion, commitment, and sacrifice of Christ should inspire, comfort, convict, and compel us. And if you're having a hard time making a sacrifice, if you're having a hard time giving, it's possible that the sacrifice of Christ has just become a historical story to you. That it's just become a, yeah, yeah, no, I know Jesus died. I'm excited to get to go to heaven. I'm happy to have my prayers answered. But it's, it's lost its sense of awe. So my encouragement to all of us, myself included, is to take our eyes off of ourselves and to turn our eyes again to the cross and see this committed Christ, see this compelling catalyst, see this compassionate child, see this Jesus and live a life that replicates the same kind of commitment. Would you pray with me? God, I I pray that you would stir in us a heart that is motivated by our view of you feet that are motivated by our view of you, hands that are motivated by our view of you, that we would be people who are compassionate the way you were compassionate, we'd be comforted by your care for us, that we would see your humility in in being a common criminal in the view of many people and recognize that you've called us to humility as well. God, I pray that you would stir in us a heart that is committed to finish what you've called us to do, And that you would give us a heart to be catalyzed by your sacrifice and live sacrificial sacrificial lives as well. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.